Hello everyone. Welcome to Recast and I'm your host Saurabh Sardana. World around us has changed and recasted in a way that is difficult to imagine. It has become more complex and for some overwhelming. This podcast series is the result of my hunger to inspire individuals and companies to unlock growth value through power of understanding societies and consumers. It's not the ideas but those who make ideas work will stay ahead. So I will dig into the untold stories and unfiltered content from people who have made these ideas work for them. Stay tuned. The world is getting louder and noisier. We live a life filled with pings, likes, shares and notifications. It has become very hard to sift through real conversations and relevant content that impact our lives. This is where attention becomes a valuable commodity for businesses to engage with their customers. The best way to do it is by telling a story that moves people. Today I have a special guest, Graham Brown, the founder of Pickle and Co, which is a performance communications agency specializing in B2B podcasts and webinars. Graham is a trained AI practitioner but now believes in more authentic interaction. Welcome to my show, Graham. Thanks, Sarab. It's great to be here. Looking forward to this. Graham, I think uh let me just, you know, sort of kick it off on a more broader note. You know, I can I can see that you know you have you have AI powered storyteller as a part of your caption. And I and I also know that you know probably you did a course in AI way back in 1995. Yeah. <laughs> That's like almost like 25 oh, my years sins. back. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh I think I think one of the broad questions for you uh here is that you know how has the market changed and how has the marketeer changed you know how have they recasted their roles because i'm pretty sure that 25 years back uh you know nobody had even heard about ai and now i think you know there are organizations who don't embrace ai might not even survive so just give me your view uh of you know what has changed in last 10 to 15 years uh and how do you see those broad shifts and uh what is of significance you know to any of our listeners today Yeah, this is a very broad question. Maybe we can start by going back. I mean, you're right. I was a graduate in AI in the last millennium as it was for my sins giving away my age a little bit. I mean, I graduated with AI back then and you're right, not many people knew what AI was. I mean, it was a a subdivision of psychology and cognitive sciences at the time whereas now it's obviously it's the subject of the the era and if i graduated with ai now i would be working at facebook or google you know i would be able to pick and choose my calling but back then it was very different and part of it was technology that the technology we used for ai in the 90s was obviously running on computers in the 90s and you got to think that windows 95 was just launched when i graduated in ai so that's how advanced or you know lack of advance we were back then so the computational power just wasn't there i mean ai requires like massive data sets and massive computational power to crunch many many iterations of data so the the ai that we were using back then was more evolutionary ai so it would solve problems without a top level approach so it would basically evolve a set of solutions and just like darwinian selection it would kill off some of the algorithms and then breed effectively a new set of algorithms so for that you need millions and millions of iterations and very extensive computational power so back then ai as a marketing tool was just not 
considered. It was just a philosophical diversion. So back then, graduating in AI gave me no job prospects whatsoever. And in fact, the, the woman in the careers library told me to go and teach English in Japan, which I did, which was actually, I think for me, an introduction to marketing and presentation. So, I mean, to your point about how marketing has changed, I think there's top level truths and, um, you know, sorry, there's, there's fundamental truths that haven't changed and there's technology and content that has changed. Obviously channels are completely different now. You know, TV is not the default channel really for communicating and engaging yet there are fundamental truths which i'm sure we're going to talk about in this podcast like storytelling which have never changed so yes marketing has changed and yet it hasn't changed as well it depends on whether you're looking at the content level or the context level which sits underneath it that's very interesting Graham. i think um, you I, I think you made a very interesting point that you know the fundamentals have not changed probably you know the toolkit uh, you know, has been recasted and hence I think people have to, you know, learn, you know, new tricks in this trade, uh, you know, to stay ahead. And hence, I think, you know, three fundamentals that I have always kept very close, uh, you know, to myself are the medium, the message and the messenger. Right. And I'm sure that I think, you know, you spoke about TV uh, and, you know, you spoke about, um, you know, how how sort of technology is playing that role. So I'm sure that, you know, the medium, you know, has 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 dramatically changed. Um, so has the message. I mean, you know, actually the kind of content we consume these days, uh, you know, be, it, uh, you know, sort of digitally uh, or, you know, like, uh, um, you know, through through our, uh, you know, uh, sort of different uh, chat and messaging platforms. And of course, I think the messenger where I think your storytelling part, you know, sort of fits in really well. So uh, I've, I've actually seen that, you know, many marketing industry really struggle to answer this question. What has changed the most? Has it been the medium? Has it been the messenger or has it been the message? Uh, so I think in like last 25 years, you know, what have you observed? I know, you know, three, you know, all three of them have changed in their own little way, but uh, which has, you know, been disrupted the most? Without a doubt, the medium. It was Marshall McLuhan who said the medium is the message. And I think he said that in the 50s or the 60s regarding TV, in that the fact, if you think about it, like the especially the generation I grew up and so I graduated in 95 but you know I grew up in the 80s that was what marketers would call generation x we were that generation that grew up on tv the pre-internet generation and so for me if I think for example like 1989 you go back to an era where MTV was new TV advertising was at its peak, its zenith, in it, it's certainly in in you know the, the the mind share of the best talent. So, for example, if you graduated in the mid to late eighties, to become a TV or an ad exec or a madman was seen in many ways as very aspirational. In the same way, becoming maybe a startup founder or you know, some, you know, business leader today. So it had that sort of cachet back then. So if you think about it, in 1989, for example, Pepsi spent, I believe, $5 million on one advert with Madonna, which aired once on MTV. And it was the uh, an advert, you know, obviously it was a Pepsi ad, but it also had the making of the ad as well. 
So they had this whole sort of series about how they made this ad and then they aired this ad and when they were going to air this ad actually on news, on the nine o'clock news, I remember it said the advert is going live. So, you know, that is the kind of mindshare that the medium had back in the 80s, that the fact was that because you could advertise on TV, that itself was social proof. And this is important because, you know, when we talk about marketing, marketing is all about social proof. It's all about why should I buy this? Why is people like me buying this, right? And if you grew up in that era, TV provided the social proof because it was expensive. And therefore, if you could get on TV in 1989 and pay $5 million to Madonna, it meant effectively people like you and me, Sarah, were buying enough Pepsi to pay for it. So that was the inherent social proof that the medium gave to marketers. The fact that you were on TV was itself social proof. And it said in many products as seen on TV. Now that's changed. That has changed fundamentally because the fact you're on TV doesn't mean anything anymore because you can be on YouTube and you could be like Ryan Kadji, a nine-year-old kid who's earning $25 million a year on YouTube, right? Or just some average 13-year-old kid doing a Minecraft walkthrough. So the fact you're on TV now means nothing. So the medium has fundamentally changed and the industry hasn't changed at the same speed, obviously. So that that's the challenge, is that the consumer and their relationship with the medium has changed fundamentally, but they're the fastest moving part of the chain. And the slowest moving part of the chain is are the other parts, which are, you know, for example, what the messenger feels and how they use that medium. So people still think of using it in a certain way. And that's where the work needs to be done. We need to help those people make the transition to understand that now you need to engage people in a very different way because doing, you know, a 30 second spot on primetime TV doesn't work anymore. That's so true. Um, in fact, I think I'm, I'm, I'm quite excited to, you know, hear those thoughts. Uh, uh, you know, I think you also spoke about, you know, growing up in 80s. And I think one a unique feature about growing up in 80s uh, was that I think a lot of uh, medium disruption happened within that era as well. I mean, you know, cellular phones were introduced, IBM PC came in, you know, it was uh, it was Windows and Mac, you know, which sort of got launched in, you know, 85, 86. Um, just in the gaming space, it was also actually Nintendo. Uh, Spatial in Columbia came in. And I think, uh, you know, uh, you know, the whole sort of computing power um, you know, sort of increased many folds and hence I think people were able to process more data and hence I think, you know, the content proliferation probably happened. So I think that's that's very exciting that probably I think the disruption always starts with the medium and then I think it sort of impacts how we message uh, and then, and then you know, how Messenger, you know, takes that message forward. So I think that's, that's, that's really, really exciting. And hence I think, uh, yes, please. Yeah, no, I was thinking about the 80s. It's like, I mean, you know, I'm, I think I'm slightly older than you, Sarab. So um, <laughs> I remember, but yeah, I mean, you, you know, I mean, you've highlighted it really well in terms of what happened back then. But it's, I think for those that didn't grow up there, it's, in, it's important to put it into context. Like in, in 1989, I was 17. And I remember watching on TV, people, uh, normal people, just, you know, average citizens pulling down the Berlin Wall. 
you know, and watching it and thinking like if you were 17 years old back then, that sent a very powerful message to everybody of that generation that this is our time because, you know, we had grown up under this specter of conflict between the old world, you know, the communist East and, you know, the, the free world. We, we had grown up under that and the threat of nuclear war. And then seeing people pull down the wall, you sensed there was a real sense of positivity that came with that generation that actually we can do anything. And the sense was then now, if you grew up prior to that, it was a very closed world. And now there's this whole concept of open networks and open, you know, uh, markets effectively, you know, physically East Europe markets opening up, but also technology allowed you for the first time to communicate globally. So I think the mindset has to go with that as well. You know, that was the the context, that was the scene in which all that technology happened back then. That's very interesting. So just let me pick, you know, each of these one by one and sort of get your thoughts on it. Uh, we, we've spoken about that, you know, how medium, uh, you know, has has shifted in last 25 to 30 years. So I mean, right from you know, sort of getting our hardware and, you know, TV boxes in the house to, you know, sort of buying our first desktop computer, you know, to internet, to social media, to apps, to super apps, and now, you know, to sort of, you know, more of micro channels like chatbots and podcasts, because I think they sort of allow you to, you know, really penetrate the tribe, you know, that you appeal to. How have you seen this journey in terms of medium? And I think, you know, how has this medium changed, um, you know, along the way? Well, if you look at the two extremes of that journey, on the, the very beginning of the journey of marketing, you know, if you look at modern marketing and you go back to brands like Coke and Pepsi, for example, which really were the, you know, they gave us the playbook because there was a time, and for example, like with Coke, you know, it was made out of uh, coca leaves and cola nuts, right? That's what it was made out of. So it had this dubious association with cocaine, which in the early days it was because that's what it was marketed as. But obviously into the modern era, it had to lose all those ingredients. So all it was is just sugar and water with caffeine, right? And it was the same with Pepsi as well. Pepsi actually got its name from dyspepsia, which is a, a, a stomach condition, right? And it was sold as a, a medicine to solve upset stomachs. And it had cocaine and like some ver you know, like medical version of it in there. So in the modern sort of post-war era, all of those just became sugar and water. So to sell sugar and water, you had to sell a story around it because, you know, why buy this thing? And they, they, they invented the storytelling around the product, right? And that was the playbook that became, for example, the Pepsi generation that we're talking about with Madonna and so on and Coke because, all, all, you know, the ingredients meant nothing. And if you now fast forward all of that, I mean, you talk about super apps, for example, you talk about where we're going now. Look at where we are even here in Singapore, as an example, the other day I was, you know, before the COVID situation hit, I was at a hawker center and there was a bike, one of those delivery bikes parked in the, the racks of the hawker center and somebody's obviously picking something up. And on that bike, he had two boxes on the back. On There was a green box for grab, eat, and then there was a black box, I think, or a dark green box for Deliveroo, the other food delivery company, which made me think, actually, 
isn't that telling of where we are right now is that we're in a situation where we have these super apps like Uber and Grab and Gojek, and eventually every company is moving towards that model. And they have the same products because they're getting them from effectively the same retail hawker st- stands, stores. They have the same, almost the same logos, the same branding. They have access to the same AI and the same programmers. They're all outsourced anyway. And they even have the same delivery drivers with the same customers and the apps on the phone are almost the same. So everything is becoming what in the old world they talked to us about barriers to entry and marketing is becoming um, irrelevant. You know, that everything is now becoming soda effectively. You know, with the, 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 the existence of these super apps, everybody has the same assets and the same talent. You know, even if you look, for example, like you know, access to talent in India, you know, the, the biggest pool of digital talent in the world. Everybody has access to that now. So what's happening in the challenge for us marketers now is that realizing that actually there's nothing really that distinguishes us from the next guy. All we have are people and stories that are the only barriers to entry left and the only ones worth fighting, competing for. So I think we've gone full circle. You know, if you look at where we started, soda, it was all about the ingredients. Well, that's disappeared now. And now we're sort of seeing this similar shift in business. And that's going to be hard for a bank to swallow is understanding actually your brand doesn't mean anything. Your fact you've got high street stores doesn't mean anything. The fact you've won awards doesn't mean anything. All that matters is you have a better story and you understand the customer problems better, right? So I think that's where we are. That you know, if you, you look at take the pulse of the marketing industry today, that's it. How do we rationalize that? How do we help people understand that actually products themselves, brands, are pretty worthless in this super app economy? When I speak to uh, senior marketeers and you know CMOs, you know within the industry, uh, you know everybody's talking about omni-channel experience, uh, and I think you know the more you have that discussion, you just realize that you know the word omni-channel is getting thrown around because no one really has clarity as to you know how to go about you know taking their message and messenger and you know which medium to sort of really choose because I think omni-channel has probably become an easy word to say do everything, right? And hence, I think I have to ask this question to you, given your experience. And I think I think you are also sort of running a very successful company of your own. Um, one medium that excites you the most and has got a great potential in next 10 years. You know what I'm going to say. <laughs> you set me up. Podcasts, obviously, is one. But any, any, Why would you say that? Uh, because I, I'm a graduate in AI, and therefore... I see, you know, what AI is doing to us and I see the potential of AI and, you know, I've been following AI for 25 plus years. So it's not like I'm a latecomer to the party. You know, I'm passionate about AI and because of AI podcasts, you know, I see that they're, they're bedfellows. They, they exist together. The one's causing the other ones. You know, the fact that our world is driven by algorithms is driving a need for authenticity. You know, you can fake everything else. You can't fake this conversation. We can't fake this conversation, can we? There's no way you can have a bot doing this conversation now. I mean, they may sound like Graham and Saurabh, right? 
but you know you can't give that sort of human element interjection that only a human can do and that's what we yeah. value that's great so let's, I think let's move it, to the look next, at Starbucks yeah. as, sorry look at Starbucks mm -hmm. as an example right you know I think that it's an anomaly right Starbucks or even Lego why do people play with plastic plastic bricks they're easy copyable why do people like drink coffee twice the price of McDonald's right these are the anomalies that start, you know, marketers need to think about. Why do these exist? And why are these some of the most successful brands in the world? It's because of the authenticity, because of the analog. That's true. And I think, um, you know, uh, it's it's great that you, you know, shared the example of Starbucks. I was reading it somewhere that uh, I think, uh, you know, the owner or the founder of Starbucks was rejected almost 200 times before he got his first funding. And, and hence, I think, you know, that sort of brings me to the next um, you know, thing that I'm I'm very personally interested in knowing from you is all about message, and I think you know the way we talk about message in um, uh, you know in in like actually the modern marketing world is it's all about creating content, right? I think content is the king, and uh, you know the more content you create, I think uh, better the chances for you to succeed. So, uh, what is this whole content creation? Because I think content is getting produced in like, I don't know, a hundred different ways, you know, either through data, through pictures, through sound bites, you know, through text. So, I mean, just, just help us understand that, you know, how, how uh, actually a marketer can create good content. Um, and then, you know, uh, what kind of asset creation, you know, would they uh, focus on more? What do you mean by content exactly? What are you talking about? You're talking about, for example, like social media content anything pushed out on the channels is that what you mean that's right okay yeah i mean you have to create content to get somebody's attention right you have to push something out there yet that the, no here's the challenge now sarab is that content is what you make right but above content is king kong which is context and content is what you make, but context is what you mean. So you can publish millions and millions of pieces of content, which helps obviously you could, because eventually you, you know, just through a, a random shotgun approach, you're going to get something right. However, the human brain is, is, very good at filtering out noise. So the, the challenge is, is like, how do you connect with people and create meaning for them, right? So the, the key is, is telling stories around the content that you do create, as opposed to creating volume, creating value in your messaging. And really being able to tell stories and narratives is key to that because we live in a very noisy world. LinkedIn is a great example of that, is that if you publish anything on LinkedIn, it has a lifespan of about two and a half to three days, and then it disappears, right? And it, that, that's really the fire hose of social media. We all exist in now. You're publishing content, it's gone. You're publishing content, it's gone. And it's daily, you know, every day you're starting from zero and going back to zero, and I think the 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 system is is like gaming us, almost like fruit machines, you know, in Vegas. It's like, do, 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 and you, you have to keep selecting, you keep playing, and you think you're going to win, but ultimately it wins. And 
this is the problem with content for marketers is they feel they can win the game, but they can't. The game is geared against them. The game, the, the house always wins against the gambler, right? And it's the same with content. Every day you start again and you think you're going to build up a following and then it drops and then the algorithm changes and then you drop. The key is how do you create assets in that fire hose of social media? So if you're spending all your time pushing content out on LinkedIn, ask yourself, where is that going? Like, if I want to find out about you, where do I go? And if you're not creating assets, conversation assets, then everything you do is going to get lost. So the key with content creation is, yes, create content, but you have to take somebody somewhere. So I talk about a conversation funnel, which is like, create your content, but where are you taking people next? So post your stuff on LinkedIn, but take them to a podcast or take them to a webinar or take them to your website. Otherwise, you're fooling yourself, right? So I think the key with content marketing is understand that content is the first step rather than the goal. You know, where does your content go? Because, you know, we're having this conversation now and if somebody wants to go and check out Sorable Graham, they can go and check out the website, right? Or check out the, the podcast. And that's the long tail of content that you can build up over time. So it's key building assets, Sarab. I think that's the missing part in content marketing. So I think uh, you just said that, you know, where do you want to go with that content? Are you really talking about that, you know, every content creator, every marketeer, just, you know, should start with a purpose? And that purpose is very important because I think one big challenge, uh, you know, that I've seen is that, you know, how to find your purpose is not taught in a B school. It either comes through your own life experiences. And I think that level of clarity, I've, I've not seen a lot of people, you know, have that, uh, you know, in the first place. So are you saying that it's very important to find your purpose and then create hmm. content? Yeah, and that's difficult because hmm. it's easier with hindsight, isn't it? You know, with, looking back, Steve Jobs style, you join the <laughs> dots, right? That's hindsight. That's the benefit of hindsight. Agile storytelling is really important. It's like start first. You know, it's easier to start than to think about your why. And find your start first, not find your why. The why comes later on. I'm sure like you, you and I, you know, we have many disparate interests in life. You, you know, for example, you're interested in theater, you're interested in data, you're interested in marketing. You know, how do you join the dots in all of that? And at the time, it doesn't make sense. Yet, the more you talk about it, the more you create content, the more those connections become apparent. Maybe there's a meta level that connects all of these things, you know, that you'll discover. And that, that's the key in, in having these conversations. It's agile. It's evolving. You're refining your story. So I would say to people not to worry too much about finding a purpose that comes later on. But the important thing is, is that when you start to define that, you've got to be that X guy, right? So interestingly, the other day, I had two people send me, two friends send me a video on WhatsApp. And it was a funny video about, um, it was you know, mocking podcasts. It was an Australian video. So I had two Australian friends send it to me on WhatsApp. And it says, you know, during the, the COVID-19 situation, it had all these sort of faces like pop up and it says, please, please, whatever you do, you know, don't start a podcast. It was something like that. It was just funny. It was like mocking, you know, people starting a podcast. 
But the funny thing about it, I thought was really interesting and what made me happy is like those two people chose me to send you know, that video to. They knew immediately I was the guy that they needed to send that to. So to, in their mind, in their corner of their brain and attention, I'm the podcast guy. And I've worked hard to become that. And, you know, once it sticks, own it. And I think it's so important. You know, when they say, Sarab, who, who's he? Oh, he's that guy. Oh, he's that guy that does that thing. Right? If you can get that, if you can find that space in people's minds, in their attention, that is so valuable. And I feel that's what we've got to kind of work to. You know, who are you? Like, if you don't occupy a space in somebody's attention, you know, like, I'll easily forget about who, what your content is or your purpose or whatever. You know, attention is the biggest cost in marketing today. So if you have somebody's attention, double down on it. That's so right. I mean, um, I think I think you spoke about that, you know, context is always placed above content. And uh, uh, I think for me, content creation is just not a business skill, but it's also a life skill. I think it's it's the way, you know, how you deal with people, how you get their attention and, you know, how you sort of make them do, uh, you know, what you, you know, sort of want them to do. And, and hence, I think uh, uh, I would ask this question to you. I think you've recorded, um, you know, podcast sessions with the likes of Tony Fernandez, you know, who's 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 the owner and the founder of AirAsia. Um, how did you message to him, you know, to get him to agree, you know, to record that podcast? Because for me, I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure that you know, for you as well, content creation is a life skill more mm. than just a business skill. I met him by accident in Newton Hawker Center. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> that was <laughs> a happy a, accident. <laughs> a very happy accident, yeah. And that happened purely unplanned. We had dinner, and he sat at the same table as me, and we chatted. And I pitched him the idea. I said, Tony, I want to do a podcast with you. I was t I, he knew I was doing podcasts because I had always, we were talking about what everybody did. And uh, I pitched him the idea, and he said, yeah, here's my phone number. Um be in touch and that was it that was literally the process and i think it's it's you know n nobody dislikes telling their story at any level and i think importantly as well that the more successful you become the more important it becomes to you to tell your story in your words which is really important because if you were a public figure like tony is you know, somebody who owns a football club, you can imagine that's a thankless task. You know, once owned a Formula One team, you can imagine that's never going to work out economically. And an airline as well, that your everything you say is going to be interpreted and twisted and used for some agenda. So, you know, it's handled by PR handlers and it's you know, fits an agenda for a, a media outlet. So to be able to tell your story in your words is really important. And that's why I feel for leaders as well, you talk about content as a life skill. This is probably the most important skill that they need to have now is that sort of authentic leadership, authentic storytelling. Because, you know, how much we, we, we connect with brands now because of the people behind them. That is now, I mean, bringing that back to marketing, that is essential. This is the messenger part, right? That it's essential that brands have a human face. And the most important face, obviously, is the leader or, you know, leaders within the organization, right? And getting them to tell their story in a vulnerable and 
authentic way. I think uh, we've spoken about storytelling uh, quite a bit, I think, during uh, you know this recording. And hence, uh, uh, one question that I have, I've seen organizations, you know, investing uh, millions and uh, you know zillions of dollars in uh, investing in new technology. You know, they just want, you know, like a very powerful chatbot so that, you know, that can engage with their customers and, you know, that can engage with them at a scale. Um, you know, they are investing in very conversational UI, UX. And I think those are the kinds of jobs that are also out there, um, you know, sort of looking for that kind of talent. I've seen very few organizations investing in people and making them, you know, their best storytellers. So have we sort of got, you know, the whole storytelling experience wrong? Uh, and And now I think just to make things more complicated, you know, you have, you know, the data, you know, sort of coming into picture. So I think everyone is looking for data. Possibly they think that, you know, data tells them the full story. And hence, I think they don't need storytellers. And I think uh, from the industry where I come, which is, you know, the insights business, I think that's that's one challenge that we face that I think a lot of researchers within our industry, you know, sort of try and and tell stories based on, you know, simple dry facts, which possibly are not even stories. And hence, I think, you know, at an emotional level, we fail to connect, you know, with most of our clients, uh, you know, who run very high on emotions. So have we got storytelling wrong? Mm, that's an interesting question. Not sure. I mean, yeah, in some cases, maybe we don't understand what storytelling is. And, you know, maybe it's because we think storytelling is once upon a time. And yes, that is a form of storytelling. But in business, you know, we're not doing once upon a time. We are creating narratives which connect and shape and frame our understanding of information. So, you know, th there is a concept in business called strategic narratives, which is basically, I I'll give you an example of what that is in a very fundamental way, um, a map. So, like, if you look at a map, in most cases, the, the maps that you see on the wall and you would see a very standard Mercator project, projection map and that would have, for example, on the left-hand side, the Americas and sort of on the right center, Europe and Africa and on the right, you've got Asia pushed out into the margin, right? That's how it's been for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And, and a map is a story because... It's how we choose to present the data, right? And we've chosen, we, as in mankind, humankind, and there's, you know, many different ways you can show a map. We've chosen to present it that way because it reinforces a narrative about imperial colonization of the world, which is the world is based around the Atlantic, these two powers, on the one hand, you've got the US, on the other hand, you've got Great Britain and the old world, Europe, for example. And that has reinforced a narrative that that is the center of the world. And it's just a map. And you might say, well, you know, it's just a story. But look at how that shapes everything about how we think about the world. You know, the interesting thing, if you look at a map that actually the north is on the top, and I show that to people and I talk about, when I teach uh, business leaders storytelling, I show them a map and I say, why is the North on the top? And they say, well, it's because that's the top of the world. And I say, it isn't. 
because in space there is no up and no down, right? If you think about it, if you ask a physicist, there is no up in space and no down. It could easily be the other way around, right? And they say, well, no, the 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 compass, the red point of the compass points north, and north is at the top. It's not because the magnetism. If you look at the physics of magnetism. The compass point doesn't actually point to the north; it points to the north and the south at the same time. And yet, we've got this story about the north being on the top. And there is actually—it's interesting. Go and Google it. There's something called the South Up Map, and the South Up Map is what the world looks like if you put the south at the top, top, and the north at the bottom. And it looks fundamentally different. The world looks very different. You know, Africa, India, much, much bigger. United Kingdom, Great Britain, tiny, tiny little island just to the bottom right. And you think about that, oh, now the world looks very different. So my point about maps is maps are stories. The data is the same, yet with brands, marketers, you can choose different maps. And I say to leaders, it's like, own your map, choose a map and own it. You know, Red Bull did this very successfully when it created a category. It said, we are not going to compete with Coke. We are not soda. We are energy drinks, and that category doesn't exist. So we're going to make it. That's storytelling. That's what storytelling does, and that's how you build great brands. You choose your map, and you own it, and that is the strategic narrative of storytelling. So yes, once upon a time, but if you want to look at the the hard impact of story on business, that's it. It goes right to the bottom line. Maps remind me of a of a very interesting point as well. Uh, you know, I think we in East, you know, would always refer to you know places like Oman, UAE as Middle East, but for us, that's Middle West. Now, I think you know uh, because we've heard so many stories from you know Western countries, I think we've just sort of you know blindly followed, and you know uh, we we will also refer you know to that region as you know Middle East and not as Middle West uh, because I think that's sort of geographically incorrect. So yes, I mean that's that's where I also see you know the power of storytelling. Uh, but yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think what we have probably not done well is sort of you know really understanding the map and you know layering our own context on top mm. of it. But I think well, you, there are you, you've functions. adopted a map, haven't you? You've adopted somebody else's narrative, absolutely. and that's the power. If you if you can define that narrative, everybody else adopts it, and that's the key to leadership when you create a story. True, and I think in every story, uh, you know, from what I've uh, learned is, and I think this is this is you know what our conversation was just before we even started recording this, you know, the interplay between logic and emotion. Uh, folks from my industry, uh, you know, who uh, uh, survive and thrive on logic, um, you know, they think that you know once I get into a boardroom and I actually tell you know the CEO why your brand, why your organization, why your campaign hasn't performed. And I think here is the number. I think that would do the trick. However, I think you know the audience there is actually consuming more emotions than logic. So, uh, in your opinion, I mean, when you uh, have to become a good storyteller, what is the interplay between logic and emotion? Oh, this is a great subject. We don't have enough time. I mean, th- this subject can go on for hours. The emotion <laughs> and logic. Yeah, I, I, th- I feel that there's a a sphere of emotion in in business in the sense that if, if you know like when people say oh that he, he's emotional 
it's almost like negative, pejorative, right? Where you make decisions logically and therefore you are intelligent and mature in your decision making. And, you know, even if you go back to cultural narratives, for example, you look at, I mean, there's, there's an old TV series called Star Trek. And, you know, you've got two characters in that. You've got one who's the, the, the leader, the captain, Captain Kirk. And then you've got his advisor, who's this sort of alien creature, who's, a, who's called Spock, who's from another world. And he's unemotional. He's logical. And he would often say to Captain Kirk, James Kirk, William Shatner, he would say, that's not logical, Captain. And, you know, it's almost like good decision is made out of logic as opposed to emotion. But it's interesting because the, the data contradicts that. And if you look, for example, at a lot of neuropsychological work that's been done on logic and emotion, there was a, a famous study by Antonio Damasio, a, a psychologist, and he studied patients who had trauma damage to their brain, the emotional cortex of the brain. And he found that whereas most people would think that if you had dysfunctioning emotion in your brain or no emotion in your brain, you'd probably be quite cold and boring, or maybe good at chess or something like that. The reality was is that those patients who had a damaged emotional cortex, the one thing they couldn't do on a daily basis was make decisions. They couldn't decide, you know, like, am I going to wear my sandals or my boots today? Or am I going to do tea or coffee? They couldn't make very functional decisions about day-to-day -day life because they had a damaged dysfunctional emotional cortex in the brain and what we don't understand so much is how influential emotion is in decision making and yet actually when you look at the data of course you can look at individuals and how they perform without emotion and how dysfunctional they are and then look at the consumer the market side and look at how people decide on emotion i mean a great example of this if you look at the data on fundraising for cancer and diseases like breast cancer for example raises approximately 250 million dollars a year in the u.s and heart disease raises a fifth of that 50 million yet heart disease kills more people than breast cancer and i'm not suggesting one is better than the other but the point being is that it's easier to get people to open their wallets and pay for something that they are emotionally attached to or even scared of, right? Because, you know, breast cancer, or there's a lot of narratives about what that could be, but heart disease, well, that's just, you know, maybe old people, unfit people, people with poor diets, maybe. I don't feel emotionally connected to that. So, you know, breast cancer raises eight times much more, eight times more money than per death than heart disease every year because people buy on emotion and justify with logic. So if there's one thing that us data people need to take away is use the data to tell the story, but without a story, there is no truth. I don't understand what you're trying to do or want me to do or where this fits in to how I understand the world. Without emotion, data is useless. That's that's so true, and I think that's been my experience as well. So I think just to now quickly wrap this up, I think I I give this opportunity to my guests to be futurists. Uh, you know, the shift has happened. You know, the shift will keep happening. Um, what do you think? I think will be the two or three big shifts in the next ten years. Uh, so 
we the big I think they're happening now, sir. Like you know that obviously COVID has expedited a lot of the shifts. I think Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft, said you know transformation that would have taken two years has taken two months. So the shifts are really happening now. I mean, obviously artificial intelligence, so exponential technologies, technologies that create exponential gains because the 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 yield gains from artificial intelligence in terms of efficiency are going to be exponentially larger than anything that can be have achieved before so that's going to change the game it's going to change the game because it means that we can no longer focus on efficiency as a competitive differentiator it become you know useless because everything will become super efficient and therefore human beings cannot compete. You know, we've gone past the point where human beings can compete with AI on extremely complex tasks like Go, for example, or chess. Now, AI is much, much better. And AI will become better and better and better, like diagnosing diseases or identifying patterns. So, you know, if you're a doctor whose job is looking at scans every single day, if you are a lawyer who's job is to read case law every single day. If you're an accountant whose job it is to recognize patterns every single day, in 10 years time, you won't have a job. And that's the reality. And that's probably the biggest shift that people aren't ready for now. So that's the first one, exponential technology. Then you've got exponential connectivity, which is that now Everything is connected to everything. You know, we've gone the past point. We've gone past the point of 100% mobile ownership, and now it's like everything is talking to everything, and that is data. And I think, for example, there was an IBM study that said something like, you know, two years of, you know, the last two years of data, we've gathered more data points than we have in our entire human history. Think about that. The last two years of our human history is accounted for more than 50% of everything. So what's it going to be like in the next two years? It's insane the amount of data we're collecting. So how do you compete? There's just going to be vast lakes of unused data around the world. We're going to be overwhelmed with data. Everybody says data is the new oil, but it's not true. You know, data is just a resource. What is limited in supply is attention. So that's the new oil. Attention is the new oil. And that's the new currency of leadership. So I feel one of the big changes coming is exponential connectivity. We are going to be overwhelmed with data. And yet it's the people that can use the data and get your attention that will lead. Look at Greta Thunberg, a 19-year-old Swedish girl competing with the American president and winning because she has the attention of media, right? That's the change that we're going to see over the next. It's happening right now. And you wanted a third one, right? Well, I think that, you know, all of that is going to shift towards an age of authenticity. You know, that we are, you know, we've reached, reached peak efficiency, effectively. And now the next quality we need to foster and focus on is authenticity, which is you know effectiveness in communication. How can you be more authentic? How can you use data to tell more human stories? And ultimately, it's about in the age of the machine being more human. 
you know, how can you be more vulnerable? How can you dare to be vulnerable and step up, get on stage, bear yourself? These are the people that we'll consider to be leaders. So I think the age of authenticity is something that we're not prepared for, certainly not prepared for in education, certainly not prepared for in business where it's all based on efficiency. You know, I'd be interesting to see what people think and your listeners think, Sarah, about how organizations are encouraging vulnerability and making mistakes and owning mistakes. That's the key. So I think all of those are going to, I mean, all of these are happening now and COVID has just expedited all of that. But if you look at all of those and think about what do I do? How do I prepare for that? The key is being more human. You cannot compete with machines in this decade. So that is what we need to focus on. How do you communicate more human? How can you use data to be more human and to understand your customers better? Empathize. These are the skills we're going to need. So, Graham, I think, you know, the key takeaway for me, uh, you know, from this discussion has been that a guy who got trained in artificial intelligence 25 years back, uh, you know, advocates the use of authentic intelligence in next 10 years. And I think that's probably like a good note on which we can close this discussion. I think I had a fantastic session with you. uh, And I think we had some great ideas that got exchanged. Uh, Thank you for coming on my show uh, and see you around. Yeah, pleasure. I really enjoyed it. You asked some great questions, Sarab. Thank you, Graham. You've been listening to Recast with me, Saurabh Sardana. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to leave a review and rating on your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode in the next two weeks. Also, if you want to chat with me, Connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter.